You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 today. And uh, I'm going to be beginning a series on the book of James. So I don't preach all that regularly, but when I do preach every couple months or so, I'm going to be working through this book. And one of the reasons I've chosen to work through the book of James is because uh, the sections in the book are disconnected enough that you don't have to perfectly remember my sermon from two months ago in order to understand the sermon that day. Uh, but the other reason is that I love how practical this book is. Really, the whole purpose of James, the main point of the book that James makes here is that the Christian life is something to be lived out. That what we believe about Christ needs to be practiced in everyday life. And so James takes this topic and he takes this reality that we are saved, the reality that we've been redeemed, and he says, how does this work out in how we pray? How does this work out in how we treat other people? And, and the topic we'll be talking about today is how do we live out our faith in trials? But before we get into our text today, I want to just give you a little bit of background on the book. Whenever we're studying a new book, I think it's important to get a bit of the context of who wrote this book and, and why they wrote it and who they're writing it to. And we get the answer to most of those questions in, in the first verse here of James. James 1.1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So who wrote the book of James? James, good job, wow. You guys are catching on here. James wrote the book of James, which is why it is named James. Now, what we have to ask is which James this is. Uh, there's basically two options. It could be James, Jesus' apostle, or it could be James, the brother of Jesus, or technically the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, I won't go into all the different arguments two and four, but most of the evidence and most of church tradition has pointed and attributed to, to Jesus' brother, James. James is a really interesting character because during the ministry of Christ on this earth, James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. We see this in John 7, 5. It says this, not even his brothers believed in him. Now, it might be surprising at first for us to think, wow, Jesus' own brother who grew up with him did not believe who he was, who he said he was. But then you think about how frustrating it would be to have Jesus as an older brother, right? Some of you have struggled to live in the shadow of an older sibling, but try having God himself as your older brother. You know, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Because I'm not perfect, mom. But 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us that after Christ's resurrection, he appears to his brother, James. And I wish that I could be a fly on the wall in that meeting. I don't know what was said. I don't know uh, what they talked about. But, but that meeting transformed James' life. And he went from being someone who didn't believe his brother was who he said he was to being one of the most prominent leaders of the church in Jerusalem and really one of the most prominent leaders in the early church at large. James was known as a leader in the church of Jerusalem. He was known as a man of prayer. In fact, they say that his knees were so calloused from praying on his knees that they were hard as camels. James was martyred for his faith in AD 62 by Jewish religious leaders and showed his ultimate and unwavering commitment to Christ. He probably wrote the book around 45 AD, which means that was less than 15 years after Christ's resurrection, and that was, this is probably the first New Testament book that was written, which is really cool. At this time, Christianity, it's just starting. It's a fledgling movement. They're figuring things out. And who does James write this book to? Again, we see the answer in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, who are they? What does that mean? It seems that this is describing Jewish Christians, uh, part of the 12 tribes, Jewish Christians in the dispersion. This word dispersion means they're, they're scattered. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in the Holy Land. They're scattered all throughout. 
And I think the background of this is actually Acts 8.1. Remember, after Stephen was martyred and Saul had a lot to do with that, it said, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered, that's that same word dispersion, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So James is writing this book not to a specific church, but to Jewish Christians who have essentially become refugees for the sake of the gospel. They've had to leave everything. They've left their homes, they left their jobs, some of them left their families, and they fled to these strange lands where they don't have money, they don't have resources. We see that people are taking advantage of them. And so James writes to these people to remind them that true belief in Jesus must be lived out in daily life. And that message, which is so important to those early Christians, is just as important to us today. So this morning, we'll be looking at James 1 through 18 and see how James challenges these early Christians and us to live out our faith in Jesus in the face of trials. To live out our faith when there are things that come that disrupt our lives, difficult situations, how do we remain faithful to God in the midst of that And so without further ado, let's read James 1 through 18. Follow along as I read. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not be supposed that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is given birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. We've all seen a child have a temper tantrum. The kid drops their ice cream cone or they don't get that toy from the store that they wanted and suddenly that sweet little child uh, transforms into something from an exorcism horror movie. They're writhing on the ground, they're they're screaming, they're kicking And, and so we can look at that behavior and we can see how silly that is. But what do we do when we don't get what we want? What do we do when things go wrong in our life? when we get stuck in traffic on the way to work, when we can't find our keys or our wallet, when our kids are the kids throwing the temper tantrum in the store, or when we have a really hard day and all we want is a bowl of ice cream and we go to the freezer and open up the door and find out someone has already eaten all of it. That struck pretty close to home for some of you, I can tell. And what about when things go really really wrong, when you get diagnosed with cancer, when your loved one passes away, when, when your life falls apart in these really big and significant ways, in those moments, being faithful to God is really difficult. 
And more often than not, I think we find that we face our trials and in the midst of that, our hearts are throwing that same temper tantrum that that child is, though we might be a little better at hiding it. As much as we'd like to, we can't avoid trials. James makes this clear in verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, when you meet trials of various kinds. Some trials are really big, life-altering events. Some trials are just the everyday frustrations of living as a sinner with sinners in a fallen world. But regardless, we're all going to face trials. Maybe you're facing one right now. If you're not, you're going to face one in the future. Trials are a part of life. But regardless of what kind of trial we're facing, whether it's a big one or a small one, James makes clear that our faith in Christ should have an effect on how we respond to those trials. That because of Christ, we can be faithful in the midst of trials, both great and small. And not not just survive the trials, but that trials actually can be an incredible opportunity for us to grow in our faith and to glorify God. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we be faithful in trials when everything in us wants to respond with sin or despair? And in our text this morning, James gives us five ways to be faithful in trials. Five ways to be faithful in trials in in verses 2 through 18. The first way to be faithful in trials we see in verses 2 through 4, and that is to rejoice in God's providence. Go ahead and look at verse 2. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I experience a trial, joy is typically not the natural response that I have. We get angry. We get frustrated. We lash out at others. We become discouraged or anxious, but joyful? How in the world are we supposed to do that? James answers this question in verses 3 through 4. He says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, James is not saying that we should rejoice in the trial itself. We don't say, yay, I get to suffer today. This is wonderful. Yippee. That's not what he's saying. We don't rejoice in the trial itself, but we rejoice in what God in his providence is producing in us through the trial. Not in the trial, but in what the trial produces. And what do these trials produce? We see this in verse 3. For we know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, strong endurance, in times of difficulty. And this is so important to have in the Christian life. And in turn, if we are steadfast, if we endure well, that leads to what? That we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is speaking of maturity, that we would grow in completeness and wholeness and eventually reach perfection, not on this earth, but in glory. In verse 3, James describes trials as a testing of our faith. And I think that word testing is really helpful because we see that used in the Old Testament to describe a refiner's fire. Uh, These fires were used on precious metals. You would have silver or gold and you would set these really hot fires and it would melt those precious metals. And any impurities in those metals would rise to the surface so they could be removed. And then when the metal hardened again, it was more pure and more valuable than it was before. And trials really function that same way in our life. When the heat is turned up, when we face trials, they certainly have a way of bringing some ugly things to the surface, don't they? Exposing secret sins revealing hidden idols that maybe we didn't even know were there, but we see them in those times of trials. And as painful as it is to see that ugliness that is in you, that's so important. Because as those sins are revealed in us, we can deal with those sins. We can turn those sins over to the Lord. We can repent to him, and we can become more holy, more mature. Romans 8.28 tells us, For those who love 
God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And all things includes trials. And that good isn't a new car or more money in your bank account. That good in that context there is our salvation, our sanctification, and our glorification. So all things, even those trials, even those difficult circumstances in your life, God has placed them in your life to grow and mature you in your faith. And we know this by experience, right? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, look back in your life. When were the periods in your life where you grew the most as a Christian? I can bet nine times out of 10, it was times when you faced significant suffering and difficulty and trials. So we see how God used those trials to mature us and grow us in our faith. And so we don't rejoice in the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or getting sick, but we rejoice in the fact that God is using those trials in our life to make us more like Christ. And as much as you and I want to be comfortable and want to have things easy on us, that is far better. So the next time you're in a trial, whether it is the kid, your child throwing a temper tantrum, or it's something really serious like cancer, before we go into sin or despair, remind your soul of these truths. Say to yourself, listen, I might not like this trial, but Lord, I know that in your providence, you have put this in my life to somehow grow and mature me in my faith. And so I'm going to rejoice in God's providence and try to seek out, God, what are you teaching me here? Charles Simeon said this, Complain not that your trials are heavy of our long continuance, but be more anxious to have your dross consumed than to have the intensity of the furnace diminished. It's not wrong to pray for a trial to end, but more importantly, we should pray that, that God would use that trial to draw us to Christ to mature us in our faith, that we would emerge from that trial more holy, more sanctified, more loving, more filled with the fruit of the Spirit than we were before. So how do we faithfully weather trials? We must first rejoice in God's providence, knowing that he is working through them for our good and his glory. The second way that we are to be faithful in trials, we see in verses 5 through 8, and that is to ask for God's wisdom. Perhaps in no place is the need for wisdom so clear in times of trials, because all these questions come up, and you need to make decisions and do actions. How do I respond in this situation? How do I talk to this person? Where am I going to get the money for that? What should I do about this? These are difficult questions that come up in the midst of trials, and they show us just how much we lack wisdom. But what do we do if we lack wisdom? James 1 verse 5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Do any of you guys lack wisdom this morning? I know that I certainly do. What does this text say to do? Ask God, and he will give it to us. He is the author of wisdom after all. He is infinitely wise. He is all-knowing, and he graciously shares that wisdom with us. And so if we lack wisdom, ask God, and he will give it to you. That is the promise in this text. And look how God gives wisdom. It says in verse 5 that he gives generously to all without reproach. Sometimes you order food at a fast food restaurant, and it seems like to the employee there, you are just a huge inconvenience to them. They let out a big sigh, and they take your order, and you wait for like ever, and then they slide it over to you, and the order's not quite right, but at this point, you're just happy that you got your food. But then, you go to Chick-fil-A, and you walk in through that doors, and that employee greets you with a smile, and it's like they've been waiting all day just for you to arrive. And they take your order, 
and they get your order right, and they bring it to your table, and you get that chickeny goodness, and you say thank you, and what do they say? My pleasure. And they really mean it. It's the most incredible thing, and, and, and friends, that is kind of like the attitude by which God is giving us wisdom when we ask him. He's not crossing his arms and saying, oh, you again? Oh, I guess I can spare a little bit of wisdom today. He says, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're asking. Here, take wisdom from me. It's his pleasure to give wisdom to us. And so don't be afraid to ask God for wisdom. At times, it seems like that's the last thing we do, isn't it? We consult Google. We ask our friends. We ask family members. We look to the experts to figure out what to do. But the last thing we end up doing so many times is praying to God and asking him for wisdom. Make that the first place you go. God is all-wise, he's all-knowing, and he generously gives to us if we ask him. And so if you don't know what to do in a situation, ask God, and he will graciously give you the wisdom that you need. But verses 6 through 8 provides a condition for asking. In order to get wisdom, not only do we have to ask God, we have to ask in the right way. Verses 6 through 8 says this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, and that person will not suppose that he will receive anything for the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now these three verses have caused people a lot of grief, because they've been either misunderstood or misused. And I've had people say to me, I just, if maybe my faith was stronger when I prayed for God to, to save my friend, it would have happened. And it's my fault. If I would have had stronger faith, God would have answered my prayers. But this passage, James is not saying that unless we pray in perfect faith without the slightest doubt in our mind, our prayers would never be answered. If that was the case, none of us would ever have any of our prayers answered ever because every Christian struggles with doubts at times. That's what a that's a part of what faith is. It's not, it's not never having any doubts. It's choosing to trust in God despite doubts. Choosing to trust in God, maybe when you don't feel like what God's word says is true, but you decide to trust it anyway. That's what faith is. So what is James saying here? I think it's helpful when we look at how this person who doubts is described. In verse 6, it says they're driven and tossed by the wind, literally meaning they're all over the place. They're over here, they're over here, they're, they're unstable, right? He says that again in verse 8. And then in verse 8, what he also says is that this person who doubts is a double-minded man. That word for double-minded literally means two-souled. John Bunyan helpfully described this person in Pilgrim's Progress as Mr. Facing Both Ways. So what this person is doing is with one half, they're they are praying to God and, and they're seeking him, and the other half, they're seeking the things of the world and the resources that are there. So it's not an issue of a genuine Christian who's struggling with doubt and trying to trust God in the midst of it. This is somebody who is trying to follow God and live for the world at the same time. And the Bible tells us very clearly you can't live like that. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The issue here is not occasional doubt that all of us as Christians struggle with time to time. It is divided loyalties. And these people are asking for wisdom, not to glorify God, but to please themselves. And because of that, their prayers will not be answered. James 4.3 says this about prayer. It says, you ask and do not receive, and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. This is the person he's talking about. And so if this double-minded person describes you, you're trying to follow God and at the same time get the most that you can out of this world, James says, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. But if you're a true believer, 
who struggles with doubts and is trying to trust God in the midst of that, you can ask God for wisdom and he's not gonna turn you down. He generously will give you the wisdom you need without any sort of reproach. And that's a promise that we can trust in and we can rest in. So if we are to be faithful in trials, we must rejoice in God's providence. And secondly, we must uh, ask God for his wisdom. And now third, we must focus on what matters most. We see this in verses 9 through 12, that we must focus on what matters most. And in this verses here, there's two different kinds of people. There are the lowly and the rich. James speaks to the lowly, which that word would mean someone in poverty, someone of humble circumstances. In verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, what is he talking about? What exaltation would someone who's poor and of humble means have? And the answer to that question is, this is referring to the exaltation to the riches that they have in Christ. We as Christians are reminded that regardless of what our bank account says, we are incredibly rich. We have a wealth in Christ. And so these lowly people, remember the people in James are, are refugees. They don't have much. They're struggling with finances. Most of them are in this lowly category. And then yet he reminds them, you can boast in all the wonderful riches that you have in Christ. On the flip side, in verse 10, James says this, to the rich, the rich is to boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And so what I think James is saying here is that when we're, when we're rich, when we have everything that we need, we can be tempted to boast in those things put our confidence in the money that we have, the resources that we have, our 401k, whatever it might be, we say, look at me, I've got it all together, I have everything that I need. And James says, don't post in those things. All of those things are gonna fade away like a flower that's here one day and gone tomorrow. But instead, I think he's trying to turn their eyes again and boast not in that, boast in, in the hum humiliation that you have that you are servant of God, a slave of God, that you serve a crucified Lord, that you're not any better than anybody else because of what your bank account says, because of how the world views you. And so really, I think James' point here is that whether we are rich or whether we are poor, we tend to value ourselves by the world's standards instead of God's. When we're in poverty, in times of trial, financial difficulty, it's so easy to focus on the riches of this world that we don't have and to lose sight and lose focus of the riches that we have in Christ. And on the flip side, when we are wealthy, when we have the resources that we need, it's so easy to focus on those things and to lose sight of the riches that we have in Christ, the things that truly matter. And so to both the rich and the poor, James encourages us to change our perspective, to be reminded that true riches are found in Christ, not in this world. James further reminds us in verse 12 that we not only have riches in Christ, now we have a future reward promised to us. Verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. All the stuff in this world, all the accomplishment in this world, those things will fade away, but the riches in Christ will last forever. The reward for those who endure is eternity with God in heaven. And that's what's worth focusing on. One time I was playing catch with a friend and we were throwing the ball back and forth and he threw the ball way to my right and I ran to the right as fast as I could to try to catch it. And I was so busy looking at the ball that I didn't see the metal signpost until I hit it with my face. And the reason I ran into the sign was I was so focused on the ball that I didn't see it. I had my eyes in the wrong place. And sometimes I think the reason that we struggle so much with trials is because our eyes are in the wrong place. We're so focused on our troubles, 
We're so focused on the few things that are going wrong, the few things that we don't have, that we lose sight of everything else. And what we need in trials often is not so much a change in circumstances, but a change in perspective. Instead of being so focused on the riches of this earth and devastated if we lose them or discouraged because we don't have them, we should remind ourselves and focus instead on the riches we have in Christ. Rather being so preoccupied with this present world that is soon passing away, we should lift our eyes up to the future eternal reward that we've been promised. And when we change our perspective, even if the circumstances stay the same, if we can get our eyes off this world and onto Christ, I think we find that suddenly our trials don't seem quite as all-consuming as they did before. And so if we want to weather trials more, we must focus on what matters most. Fourthly, in order to be faithful in trials, we must take responsibility for our own sin. As we talked about earlier, sometimes trials can bring out the worst of us. And one of the biggest temptations in trials is to blame our sin on other people, and even to blame our sin on God. We see this from the very beginning. When Adam sins and God confronts him on his sin, how does Adam respond? He doesn't say, you're right, I ate from the tree, I did wrong. He says, well, the woman that you gave to me, she gave the fruit to me. What's he doing there? Well, God, it's kind of your fault. You gave me this woman, and she's the one who did it. And so I, I'm an excuse from this. I'm not taking responsibility from this. And then what does the woman do? The woman says, well, the serpent, he told me to eat it. And so we see there right from the beginning, the very first sin that is committed, what do people do? They blame others. We're tempted to do that as well, aren't we? We blow up at our spouse, and then, and then we blame God. We say, well, if you hadn't given me such an irritating spouse, I wouldn't have gotten so angry. We fall to temptation and say, God, why did you let me be in that situation? We lie on our tax return, and, and we say, well, Lord, if you would have provided more income for me, if you didn't have that unexpected bill, then I would have been honest. You kind of forced my hand in this. Or we say that we sin because that's how God made us. I'm an alcoholic because that's how he made me. I live a homosexual lifestyle because that's how God made me, and so I'm not responsible for that. When we are in a trial, we are tempted to blame God for our sinful response, but we should do well to look at verse 13. It says this in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This verse makes it very clear that we cannot blame our sin on God. He's a holy God. He does not tempt. He can't be tempted himself with evil. There is nothing evil in him. And so what audacity we have to blame our sin on a holy God. To say that it's his fault, the only one in the universe who hasn't sinned, we say, you're the reason for my sin. We can't do that. God is not responsible for our sin. God does not cause us to sin. But if our sin isn't God's fault, well, whose fault is it? Maybe we should blame it on our parents, our circumstances, or our genetics, or other people. We do all those things, but verse 14 through 15 makes it very clear who's responsible for our sin. Verse 14 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So who is responsible for my sin? I am. I sin not because of the circumstances I'm in, not because of what someone else did to me, not because of a genetic predisposition. I sin because I want to. I sin because I have sinful desires. And so when we lash out at others, it's not because of what they did. 
It's because of what's in our hearts. We have angry and sinful hearts. And when we complain and grumble, it's not because of our circumstances. It's because of our own sinful desires. James talks about this progression of sin here. And and so let me kind of just give an example of how it plays out. You have a lustful desire in your heart. All right, so that's where it starts. It starts with your own sinful desires, and then, and then you're tempted when you're lured and enticed by your own desires. What happens is the temptation comes. You see that, uh, that ad that's a little scandalous pop up on your computer. And then it says that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And so that's when you click on the ad, and you go, and you view those images that you know are sinful and wrong. And then it says when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. The more that we indulge in sin, the more that we practice sin, the more destruction and death it produces in our lives. That is the progression there. But the temptation doesn't cause you to sin. It's not the pop-up that causes you to sin. It's your own sinful desires in your heart. Luke says, Jesus says this in Luke 6, 43 through 45, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So when we encounter trials and we respond sinfully, which will happen, which does happen before we blame our sin on God or our parents or the kids or the dog, we need to take responsibility for our own sin. What does it look like to take responsibility for our own sin? Part of that taking responsibility is repenting of that sin to God. We come before God, we confess that sin, we confess our wrongdoing, and the wonderful thing is Scripture tells us that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the other part of taking responsibility for our sin, which sometimes is the harder part, is confessing that sin to those we've hurt and asking for their forgiveness. Our culture is notoriously bad at apologizing. I've heard these, I've used these, maybe some of these sound familiar to you. Well, I'm really sorry that you took it that way. Uh, You know, um, I'm sorry that I did that, but I wouldn't have done that if you wouldn't have done this. Or one of my favorites, mistakes were made. Right? None of those are real apologies. We have to own our sin and call it for what it is. It's not a mistake. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against that person. We can't make excuses. We can't blame our sin on anybody else. We have to acknowledge the hurt that we've caused and ask for forgiveness. And so when we are in trials, we are going to have times where we all are going to respond sinfully. But the important thing is what we do with our sin. Do we double down and continue to blame others and see everyone else as the problem and us as the victim? Or do we take ownership of our sin and confess it to God and confess it to one another and and actually make a real apology? Because brothers and sisters, if in trials when we sin, the only thing that we do is blame it on other people, We're not going to grow from that trial. But if we see our sin and deal with it, God will use that to mature us and grow us in our faith. So how do we weather trials well? We must take responsibility for our own sin. The fifth one, the fifth way that we are to be faithful in trials, and this is the final one here, is we are to trust in God's goodness. We saw in my last point how in trials, a big temptation is to blame our sin on God. But another big temptation in trials is to doubt God's goodness. And the reason that's such a temptation is oftentimes in trials, God doesn't always feel very good. So we ask questions like, how could a good God 
let me have a miscarriage. How could a good God put my friend through this suffering? How could a good God place me in such a difficult relationship? If God is good, why is life so hard sometimes? These are questions that we all ask in trials because often in trials, we don't have a good answer to those questions. But look at what James says in verses 16 through 18. He says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so what James is doing here is he's addressing that and he's saying when you're in a trial and you're tempted to doubt God's goodness, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. It might be easy to feel like God is not good, to, to wonder whether he is good, but he is good. And then James proceeds to tell us how God demonstrates his goodness to us. First, he says that God's goodness is shown in the fact that he is the source of all good gifts. In verse 17, he says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. In trials, we can be tempted to feel like God dealt us a bad hand, but every single good thing in our life is there because God gave it to us. Every single one. And that reminds us of who God is. He is a generous, giving God who loves to give good gifts to his children, who gives us what we need and often so much more. We can be so focused on the thing we want that we don't have that we lose sight of all the wonderful gifts God has given us. And so if we're tempted to doubt God's goodness, count your blessings. Think about all the gifts that he's given you in your life. The second, James demonstrates God's goodness by speaking of his unchangeable nature. He mentions this in verse 17. At the end of that verse, he says, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this is important because sometimes we can believe that God is good, but not believe that God is always good. Maybe God was good to us in the past, but, but his attitude towards us has changed now. Maybe we caught him on a bad day today, and so earlier we were getting good things from God, and now he is being cruel. But that's not how God works. God never changes. And that's a good thing that God never changes because God is perfect. God could never improve in any way. Any change that God could make would be for the worse because he is already a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly good God. And this is an encouragement to us when we doubt God's goodness. There's an old saying that people have liked to say in church. It's a little bit old school, but it, it goes like this. Someone says, God is good. And then you say, all the time. And then you say, all the time, God is good. Let's practice this together, okay? I'm going to have you work a little bit here. God is good. All the time. And that is good news, isn't it? That we have a God who is good, who is always good, who always will be good. And he was good in your trials in your past, and you see that some, and you can see how he brought you through that. He's going to be good in the trial that you're in right now, and he will be good in whatever trial you face tomorrow or the next day or 20 years from now. God is good, and he is always good, and we rejoice in that. But lastly, James talks about God's goodness in verse 18, and he says that God's goodness is demonstrated in the fact that he saved our souls. Verse 18 says this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Even if we don't have much in this life, we have been saved from eternal destruction. We have been given a part in God's family, adopted as his children. And that gift is more costly and more precious than we can ever comprehend. 
And it wasn't a gift that we earned. It wasn't a gift that we worked for. Why did he bring us forth by the word of truth? Why did he give us new life? Of his own will and good pleasure. Romans 8.32 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? God demonstrate his goodness in sending his son to die for you, the greatest gift that we could ever receive. Do we really think that God is going to hang us out to dry after all that? Of course not. Charles Spurgeon said it very well. He said this, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. We can't always trace his hand. We don't know what he's doing in trials. We can't see how these things are working for good, but we can trust God's heart, a heart that is always good, a heart that is for us, a heart that is a heart of a father for his children with perfect love. And so how do we stay faithful in trials when we are tempted to doubt God's goodness? We must trust and anchor our souls to what is true. God is good all the time, and he will always be good. We have seen in our text this morning that we must live out our faith in the midst of trials. And we can do that by rejoicing in God's providence by asking for God's wisdom, knowing he gives it generously to all who ask, by focusing not on the things of this world, but on what matters most, and that is our riches and eternal reward in Christ, by taking responsibility for our own sin, not blaming anybody else, but dealing with the sin in our own hearts, and lastly, by trusting that God is good. We have seen in this passage that trials can be an incredible opportunity for spiritual growth, but that at the same time, with trials come temptations to sin and to doubt God's goodness. In his book, Why Us, When Bad Things Happen to God's People, pastor and Christian author Warren Wearsby tells a story of visiting a friend who was in the midst of a tremendous trial. Her husband had recently gone blind. And at that same time, she had come down with an incurable health issue. And on top of that, she had a stroke, which caused her to lose her job. And so she had to be at home trying to take care of her blind husband when she needed care herself. And so Warren Wearsby, he talks about how he visits with this friend. And, and in an effort to try to encourage them, he says, uh, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And the woman says, thank you, but what are you praying for God to do? That was a good question, and, and Warren admits that he kind of said, I'm praying for you, without thinking about it too much, as we often do. And so he stumbles on his words a little bit, but he says, I'm praying that, that God would provide healing. I'm praying that God would provide comfort and, and resources for people to help you. And she said, that's wonderful. I, I really appreciate that. But can you pray for one more thing? you pray that I don't waste this suffering. Pray that I don't squander this trial that I'm in. And Warren Rigsby, he talks about how he's taken aback by that request, but he is just amazed at, at this woman's faith who sees trials how James wants us to see trials here. They're difficult and they're hard. And it can be easy to fall to self-pity. It can be easy to blame other people and grumble. But trials can be in a tremendous opportunity to glorify God and to grow in our faith. I don't know what you're all going through now. I am confident in the fact that at least a few of you in this room are going through significant trials right now. And I'm confident in the fact that if you aren't, you will be in the future. My plea to you, my plea to myself, is that we do not waste our trials. 
And we don't miss the incredible opportunity that trials give us to draw closer to Christ, to grow in holiness as sin is exposed and removed and our faith matures, to learn just how precious God is and what a rock God is when everything else in our life is falling apart. Don't miss the opportunity to be an encouragement to other believers when they see you suffering and they see you suffering well and they see a faith that works. Don't miss the opportunity to live faithfully in suffering so the world sees you and they wonder what in the world is going on. How can that person respond that way in the midst of so much pain? I want what they have. Trials are a tremendous opportunity to glorify God, to grow in our faith, and we don't want to squander that. We don't want to waste that pain. And we don't go looking for trials. We don't enjoy trials, but we rejoice in the fact that they grow us and they make God look good to this world. But if we don't want to waste our trials, we have to be faithful. We have to anchor ourselves to what is true. We have to ask for wisdom, take responsibility for our sin, focus on what matters. And the wonderful thing is that God does not leave us without help. He gives us his word with truths in it that we can anchor our souls to when we feel like we've had everything else like shifting sand. He gives us riches in Christ so that whatever is taken away from us in this world, we are still incredibly wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. And he is always there to give help and wisdom to those who ask. So my challenge to you, my challenge to myself, is when we encounter trials, both big and small, that we would not waste those trials, but that we would follow the words that God gives us in his word and that we would live faithfully, that we should show that the gospel has teeth that work in suffering, that work in the everyday trenches of life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you do not stand far off from us, but you are a God who has suffered as well, that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. And so, uh, Christ, you know the pain that we experience and that we're going through. These are not pat answers that you're giving us in your word. We thank you for the help and encouragement that you give us in your word and that you give us by your spirit, that you give us through your people. And so I pray for us this morning, Lord, I pray if there are people here in this room, and I know that they are, that are struggling through significant trials, I pray that this, this would comfort them. I pray they would be encouraged. I pray that you would use the trials that they're facing to grow them in their faith, to glorify yourself to proclaim the gospel to others who have never heard. For those of us who are not in a significant trial now, I pray that these words would prepare us for when that day comes, and it will come. That when everything in us wants to be discouraged and despair and blame God and lash out at other people, we would cling to your word and remember what is true and we would remain steadfast under trial and so receive your blessing. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us that you are always good and always will be good. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful to you uh, even in times of difficulty, and especially in times of difficulty, because that is when our faith shines all the brighter. And we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.